While the kids are going out for children's sermon, I want to invite you to join me. John chapter 13. We are continuing as it is our practice to continue through books of the Bible. We're continuing through John's gospel accounts and we find ourselves this morning in John chapter 13 verses 34 and 35. As Michael reminded us last week, Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet and he still has the mud from Judas's feet on his clothing. And now he's telling the disciples as we enter into this text that he's leaving and they can't come where he's going. As we've been saying over the past few weeks, it is now the time for Jesus' glory and these are his final words. This is the inerrant and infallible word of the living God. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, you've given us your word. We have... In your word this morning, the, the words, the command of Jesus, I pray that, that as we, your people, come under this word, that, that you would give us the, the blessing of your spirit to imprint these words deep in our hearts. Do this and change us by them, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So what is a Christian? If I ask you that question, what is a Christian, what what definition comes to mind? Maybe for many of us it's not a definition, but but an image, a a, a vision of of what a Christian is, what a Christian is, is to be. Now, if we're honest, for most of us, our our experience tends to color the, the image that, that comes to mind for us. What we've seen in, in others who, who claim to be Christians, that, that tends to shape the way we answer that question. The way we have seen them live that out tends to shape the way we, we define what a Christian is or what a Christian purports to be. That's true. Of us, and if that's true of us sitting here in worship, guess what? It's also true of those who who would not claim to be Christians or who are not pursuing Christ. They, we all tend to define this notion of Christianity by what we have seen. Reinforces a point that Jesus is making here in this text. But what if, for a moment, we? We pursued our answer a different way, not by what we have seen in others, but what if we look to the Bible and allow the Bible to define for us what, what it is to be a Christian, what a Christian is, is to look like, what a Christian is, is supposed to do. Broadly, in general terms, 
The Bible points to a picture of, of, of Christianity, a, a picture of what it means to be a Christian in terms of being and in terms of doing. Now, it's a helpful reminder for us as we begin to think about the picture of a Christian because when we think in terms of a, uh, what it looks like to be a Christian, we often think in terms of doing. What a Christian does, what a Christian says, how a Christian acts. But the order of what the Bible points out for us is crucial. It's being before doing. I, one of the sweet things um, about this season of life, and I, you know, you got to forgive me, we're, we're sending off my youngest, and so there are things that aren't so sweet right now about this season of life, but uh, it's actually what we've raised you for, bud, so you, you go. But, um, but there, one of the sweet things that, uh, that I experienced in this season of life is I tend to learn things from my kids, all of my kids. And one of the things I learned from my daughter this week, she, she shared with me that she's, she's got, a, uh, I guess, a, a, a mid-year resolution. It's not a New Year's resolution, mid-year resolution, that she's resolving to, to, uh, to be with Jesus before doing for Jesus. Um, and, and she was talking to me about that. She's, she's just gotten to, to, to realize that, that, that she can't do for Jesus unless she's been with Jesus. Now, she said those simple words, and they resonated with me because I forget that. I forget that order. Maybe you do. I wonder. But there's a, there's a beauty in the simplicity of being and doing, and the order is everything. When I speak of being, I'm talking about being with Jesus. I'm talking about being in Jesus. I'm talking about belonging to Jesus. And so then when we have been with Jesus, we can do, which is to live out of a Jesus-shaped heart. A heart shaped by our being with Jesus. The two verses that we have heard, admittedly emphasizing the doing, though there is being here, and we're going to point that out, but the doing of these two verses is deeply rooted in the being that we have been looking to throughout this entire gospel account and in this final encounter with Jesus at the very last supper, the night before he's to go to the cross. He is being with his disciples tangibly, beautifully, and he's telling them what they are to do is the outflow. So I want to look at these two verses with three simple points, the command, the example, and the purpose. First, the command, love one another. Now, again, it's a simple statement and and sometimes the simple statements can be the most profound. Any of you know my friend Roger? My friend Roger here um, loves this, these verses. I've known that, I think, five minutes after I got to know Roger. And a few weeks ago, he came to me and said, James, when are, when, when are we getting to verses 34 and 35? So hang tight, bud. It's coming. It's coming. Well, we're here. Roger loves it. I love it. I hope you will love it. Because these verses are simple and yet profound. They are simple enough for a toddler to memorize. And yet, they are profound enough 
for the most mature of Christians to spend a lifetime embracing, growing into, and experiencing. Love one another. Or more simply, in, in, in two words, love others. Let's unpack what it means to love others. First, love. What is love? There's an old song. Love is a many-splendored thing. It was covered by a host of artists ranging from Andy Williams to Frank Sinatra. It speaks of the poetic, mystical beauty that exists between two lovers. A kiss in the morning mist on a windy hill that makes the world stand still. It's sweet. Sings of love in terms of, in terms of romance. Now, romance has a beautiful place, but this discussion in John thirteen is not about romance. This love that Jesus is speaking of is love as a verb. Love is a matter of service, a matter of action, and an action oriented towards others it's love that's doing that's love but what about the others we're going to discuss who those others are to be in, in just a moment but for a second can we just focus on the direction of this verbal form of of love it's outward it's a it's a love meant to be directed towards others it's other focused and and other focused Another focus, life, that might be the most simple definition of love that we could come up with. When we think of romance, oftentimes we're thinking about, the, about love as a noun. We're, we're thinking about that, that noun describing my feelings. We, we think about how another person makes me feel. There's even songs about, I love the way you make me feel. But when I speak of loving how you make me feel, that is inherently me-focused. Which is not the love that Jesus is, is speaking about when he uses love as a verb, an other-focused verb. In John chapter 3, verse 30, we, in a different context, have a, what could be a description of this. I know it's confusing, but... John 3.30, John the Apostle is writing the words of John the Baptist. And there, John 3.30, John the Baptist says, He must increase, I must decrease. Now, when he spoke those words, he was speaking about living for the glory of Christ and not for self-glory. He was saying that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. But what he's doing is he's taking that spotlight and he's turning it around. He's turning that spotlight of his focus of the affection of his heart onto Jesus and saying, I'm going to live for him. I'm going to love him. I'm going to focus on him. Again, it's a, it's a different context, but there's a sense in which he's summarizing the directional focus of Jesus' call here to love others. Not with a focus on how they make me feel, but how I am to actively love them. Here's the beauty. 
this other focus, this other action, this love, it's actually the most life-giving form of love. It's a truth that is illustrated in the distinction between two bodies of water in the Holy Land, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. The Dead Sea is the is the body of water that is in uh, the south. It's the larger body of water. Did you know that you can float in the Dead Sea and read the newspaper without a float? <laughs> you know how you can do that? The Dead Sea is eight and a half times more salty than the ocean. Salt concentration in the Dead Sea is 34%. Now, why is that? The Dead Sea has the Jordan River flowing into it. And for thousands of years, the Jordan River has been emptying nutrients and minerals into the Dead Sea. But, but though the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea, there is not a river that flows out of it. Water evaporates. But as the water evaporates, without a major source of runoff from the Dead Sea, when that water evaporates, it leaves behind those those minerals, those nutrients, that salt. The Dead Sea is beautiful. It's a beautiful body of water, but just as is so often the case in our world, that beauty is deceiving. Because the Dead Sea has no life in it. There are no plants, no fish, no life whatsoever. By contrast, up to the north there is another body of water, the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is teeming with life. It has an abundance of plant and fish life. And here's the difference. Sea of Galilee is fed by a series of underwater springs, by the, the runoff of the hills that, that are surrounding it, but also because the Jordan River flows into it from the north. But unlike the Dead Sea, the Jordan River is also flowing out down to the Dead Sea. There is a healthy flow in and a healthy flow out. And that balance of the, the flow in, the receiving of the water, and the giving of the water produces and preserves life. It is life-giving. Friends, the Dead Sea is dead because it only has an inflow, no outflow. It's an illustration of the blessing that we receive as we obey the command of Jesus to love others. For there to be not only an inflow of Jesus' love to us, but an outflow of His love to others. And there we find the joy of Christ and living in Him. you got to see that part of the beauty of this command that Jesus gives us is that it comes with an example. And the example is Jesus' love for us. Did, were you like me when you either read these verses or heard them and, and wondered about the newness of it? I mean, love, after all, is not a new concept. It's not a new command. We can look back to Leviticus 19.18. 
and God commands that His people would love others as ourselves. Love is, is part of the character of God. He is love. He has commanded love from the beginning. And so how is this a new command? There are different words in the Greek language for new. One word for new uh, contemplates newness as an aspect of, of time or, or of sequence. So when we think of newness with this word, we ought to think in terms of next. But there's another word for new. And this other word um, contemplates newness in, in terms of form or quality. So think newness in terms of freshness. A new and fresh take on an old command. The newness of this commandment is evident in its call to love as Jesus loved. This is new in that Jesus is saying, love others as I have loved you. So then how did Jesus love? Well, he loved sacrificially. His love was costly. Now, there are different elements to his sacrificial love and his costly love. There, there are elements in which we can learn from his example in ways in which we cannot. You see, Jesus' love was ultimately sacrificial in that he died an atoning substitutionary death on the cross. The God-man bore the sins of mankind in our stead. He became perfect sacrifice for sinners. You and I, we cannot mimic that sacrifice. We can only receive it. But in the receiving, we are shaped by it. That was His sacrifice in death. But Jesus loved sacrificially in His life as well. He did so by virtue of His coming. He stepped down off of the throne of glory to take on flesh. The Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, lived in the neighborhood, experienced suffering. His love for you and me was, was a sacrificial, costly love that serves as an example for us. His love was marked not by keeping score. Not by seeing what he could get in return. His love was not marked by self-gain. It was instead marked by being with his beloved. He served them. As we've just heard, as he washed their feet, he spoke with them. Jesus loved through his words. At times those words were words of encouragement. At times they were words of exhortation. But in both, the encouragement and the exhortation, his words of love were inviting, inviting his people in. We see all of that, but, but there's something else we've got to see in Jesus' example of love, something that is deeply connected to the newness of this command, and it's this, neighbor love is also enemy love. Neighbor love is also enemy love. Let's rest here.
for a moment with this command to love as Jesus loved us. The radical totality of this hit home for me this week in a personal way. Can I share a bit of a testimony and a word of confession with you? This week I had a I had a, a, a meeting uh, with leader of another ministry outside of this body where where I serve. And as I was meeting with this ministry leader, he began to describe for me a situation where he is being challenged in a, in a very difficult way by, by another person. And this challenge is, is proving to hold this ministry back in some, in some very tangible and some very detrimental ways. Ways. My friend who leads this other ministry described this challenge to me. He described it in terms of, of an attack. Now, I'm also a leader in this ministry, but as I heard my friend describing the situation, something stirred up in me that I would have liked to have called righteous indignation, but it was more just flat-out indignation. I got angry. And told him, we need to have a meeting, and I want to be there, and I want to sit across the table so I can look this man in the eye. I started to quote scripture, but what I began to realize later was that I was weaponizing the word. As we continue to talk, I reflected on the text that I'm preaching this week. It's actually one of the occupational hazards of preaching every week. The word does work in your heart first. And I reflected on what I was feeling and what I was studying in the Word, and it cut me to the quick. I had to confess to my colleagues that I was tempted to do battle instead of lovingly listen to this man who was challenging. I had to confess before my friends, and I had to repent before my Savior about my lack of love. You see, this is, this is Jesus' example. Neighbor love is enemy love. And that's where this gets real for us and where we must, we must wrestle with the text and we must see the way that Jesus has loved us while we were yet His enemies. It's the mark of transformation that the Word is called to do in our hearts. And so what does it look like for us to love our enemies? How are we to fight battles in love? You feel it? Where do you find it difficult to love others with a Christ-like love? Some of us it's extended family. For some of us it, it comes in the form of politics or just more broadly to to love the people with whom you disagree. Now, importantly, Jesus is not saying in His Word that we are to go passive. Jesus is not saying in His Word that it is the loving thing to do to retreat. But He is telling us that we are called to check our own hearts, to check our motivations, so that we seek not to win the battle, but to but to find redemption and reconciliation, to actually love the other person and to seek their good. 
on, again, a very practical level. It's difficult to love people when we are labeling. When we label people, we are engaging in in tribalism. We're, We're dividing out into camps. We're associating people with a camp, and we're labeling them according to that. And most often, it's all the things that we disagree on. To love our enemies is to seek to know them rather than to label them. Knowing rather than labeling requires us to listen. Listen to hear rather than listen to respond. To prayerfully seek to bear the fruit of the Spirit through our listening, through our loving, through our engaging. To seek for their good even when we disagree with them. This is the way Jesus loved. Jesus fought battles. He did so in love, and He did so for a purpose. The glory of God. Jesus speaks to that purpose in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. Let me, uh, let me pause at this second. Let me tell you about my brother Matt. So, I have a brother, Matt, he's an athlete, I don't know if he was an athlete, is an athlete, anyway. When we were younger, we played ball together, but more often than not, rather than being on the field to play with him, I was in the stands or whatever stadium watching him from a great distance, sometimes even on TV. And when you're watching someone playing a sport uh, from a distance, sometimes it's hard to identify him, it's hard to tell who they are, and I wanted to read on my brother. Here's the thing, he had something that made it easy to find him. My brother has a distinguishing mark. He has a birthmark, a big brown splotch on the calf of his leg. And it's unmistakable. You can see it from a great distance. And so I would look out on on this field of, of ball players, and I would know him by that birthmark. It was his identifying mark. Jesus is saying, Christian, you are to have an identifying mark. And it's not a big big brown splotch on your leg. Christian, your identifying mark is to be your love for one another. The way you love one another is your way of bearing witness to a watching world of the transforming love of Jesus, the way we as Christians love one another is meant to be the identifying mark of Christ bearing witness to the world of His work in our lives. Is it? It's the way that we're loving one another, showing something different in us. <laughs> love. Love is part of the purpose, or the way we love, and how it bears witness to Jesus is part of the purpose uh, behind what Jesus is giving us in this new command. But there's something else I believe that is a purpose of this love behind merely bearing witness. It's part of the way we enjoy Jesus. 
part of the way that we experience His love. When we love others, when we love enemies, when we love sacrificially, when we love in a way that costs us, we are entering into the joy of Jesus. We are entering into His experience. This is the joy, the sacrificial love that we have as Christians. I talked about being and doing. I talked about being before doing. But there's a danger in that. We talked about being first, but the danger is this. The danger is that we can think of being as as a brief moment in time and then flowing out of that brief moment in time a long string of doing as as if it's a straight line progression. If we'll just be with Jesus for a moment, then we can do for Him for a long string. But I want to offer to you another shape, not a straight line, but a circle. A never-ending, self-fueling, virtuous circle of being and doing. It's a circle of being with Jesus that will fuel our doing for Jesus, which then gives us a fresh experience of being with Jesus that keeps repeating itself until we finally realize that we're not doing for Jesus, but we're doing in Jesus. We're loving in Jesus. It's actually a picture of union where we get to a point where there's not a separation between the being and the doing, and that union, that oneness, is how the Bible describes the intimacy of our relationship with the Savior, whom we're called to be with and to do for. His love is a love that propels us to love others, even our enemies. It's a love that He modeled for us, a love that He describes for us, and oh, what a powerful, beautiful, identifying mark it could be. In close, I want to take you to a second century apologist named Tertullian. Now, by apologist, I don't mean he walked around saying he was sorry. <laughs> An apologist is someone who, who reasons who reasons things out. A Christian apologist is is reasoning with with non-Christians, trying to point them to the truth of Scripture. Tertullian lived in in North Africa in the late 2nd century, early 3rd century. He He was an apologist to the pagan world. By pagan, I mean the godless world. And as an apologist, he had a particular way of reasoning with these pagans. He reasoned with them by pointing them to a picture of the Christians. Picture marked by love. And he was drawing out for the pagan the distinction between the Christian love and the way the pagans looked at others. He wrote about how the Christians cared for their poor, for their elderly, 
for their shut-ins, for their shipwrecked, for their imprisoned. And he wrote about how even the pagans recognized this love and point, and the pagans themselves would point to the distinction of this love that the Christians had for others and what they themselves had. Tertullian wrote, it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead the pagans to put a brand upon us Christians. See how they say, see they say, how they, the Christians, love one another. For they, the pagans themselves, are animated by mutual hatred. See they say about us how they are ready even to die for one another, for they themselves would sooner kill. Do you hear what Tertullian is saying, do you feel it? He's saying that their love for one another is what sets them apart. If we're to be difference makers in the world, we must be different. And so let our love be what is different about us. Let love be a birthmark of a different kind, not a brown spot on our leg the marker of the softness and affection of our heart. For the Christian, love is the mark of new birth. And so, beloved, let it be true of us. Father, this is your word. It is a word that we are tempted to hear and apply as we see fit. I pray that you would, you would guard our hearts against a lesser definition of love. That we might apply it as Jesus saw fit. To love others with a sacrificial, costly love. That brings you glory and ultimately brings us joy. Would you do this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.